Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest developments in the battle for the Donbass, analyse Germany's decision to start sending air defence units to Ukraine, and report on rising tensions in Ukraine's western neighbour, Moldova. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday the 26th of April, day 62. And today I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Turnley. Later, I'll be speaking to Defence and Political Correspondent Danielle Sheridan to get her thoughts on the conflict as her time in Ukraine comes to an end. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the battlefront. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So there's been some action in the Donbass. Uh, it's reported that the town of Kremina has been taken by Russia and the towns of Slovyansk, or the cities of Slovyansk and Kramatorsk, are under pressure from the north and the east. Uh, Ukraine's also preparing defensive positions or, or, or adding to the defensive positions uh, in the vicinity of Zaporizhia and to the south, expecting a, an attack from, from the south, from the Russian-held areas around uh, Hezon. Um, and elsewhere, there's been a number of shell, uh, mainly along the line of control in, in the Donbass, a lot of shelling which has, uh, which has struck and, and killed uh, civilians in those areas. And uh, Francis, Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, warned today that there's a real danger of a third world war breaking out. And this is after apparent Ukrainian attacks on Russian soil. Can you comment on this? Yes. Well, good afternoon, David, and good afternoon, everyone listening at home. Um, Yes, it's been, I mean, we've we've been expecting this kind of rhetoric um, from from Russia and from Sergei Lavrov. throughout this throughout this conflict so far so this doesn't really come as any as any great surprise to be saying that there's a real threat of of a third world war i mean my first reaction on hearing that is is would russia be capable of 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 such a conflict um given their challenges in in ukraine obviously i suppose the answer would be yes in the nuclear sense but um that would just be mutually assured destruction so i don't really see how that would be a world war um but anyway, so yes, he's made these remarks um, as a consequence of this attack on a um, on an oil depot, and uh, not only that, he's 
it's also as a deliberate response to Germany and other countries having a U-turn on their um, support provided to, uh, in, in military terms, to to the Ukrainian forces. We'll touch on that later on. Um, but he's just to quote Lavrov directly because I think it's worth doing so. He says, "Goodwill has its limits, but it isn't reciprocal. That doesn't help the negotiation process. This is our key position on which we base everything. The risks are now considerable. I would not want to elevate those risks artificially. Many would like that. The danger is serious, real, and we must not underestimate it." So, um, quite you know, blunt remarks. I think it's fair to say um, uh, from him in that regard. Just whilst we're on the subject of this question of, of escalation uh, in, in this conflict, um, we've got a piece in the paper that will be published tomorrow and quite possibly earlier tonight, um, depending on, on, on when it's edited, um, by a very um, distinguished historian um, and, and particularly focusing on military and strategy. And he makes a very um, interesting point that when we began this conflict, people will recall um, that that much of the talk of of nuclear escalation and the dangers of escalation were coming from uh, from Russia. And the West was very, very hesitant uh, initially, uh, with the exception perhaps of Britain um, and and, and Poland, of, of providing too much support to Ukraine for fear that this would um, lead us down in, in, into a downward spiral and that Russians may well respond in ways we were not um, um, predicting. But um, he points out that actually... One we've seen a remarkable shift um, in the last few days, almost imperceptibly, as the Russians have conceded escalation dominance, that's the military term, to NATO. Um, the West is now quite willing to make big calculated risks that it wouldn't have done six weeks ago, providing and training new weapons, um, advertising more vocally the support. Obviously, we've had um, very senior American figures in Ukraine recently. We've had the British prime minister visiting. Um, it, it would appear that the UK, US, NATO is no longer fearful of a World War Three or a nuclear escalation. Um, and I just think that with the exception of perhaps some of this talk about Satan 2, which we talked about last week as, as being something that's perhaps more for a Russian's domestic audience, it seems that essentially the West is now willing to call Russia's bluff in a way that it wasn't um, earlier on. So I just think that's a, a, a an interesting point to, to, to highlight um, as we're in this this conversation around around escalation and it, not only in traditional modes of warfare, but also nuclear. But I'm sure Dom will have some have some thoughts on that. Uh, just a couple, if I may. I, I would urge people to go and read Hugh Strawn's article. It's it is fascinating. He uh, he knows his onions. Um, but I, this the language that Lavrov uses, and and a lot a lot from from the Russian establishment, Dmitry Peskov, the the spokesperson as well, and and obviously Putin. I mean, it, to me, it strikes. It's basically trying to. Um, make this argument or make the make the debate really squeeze the debate into two positions either we have to accommodate putin's aggression and this war and russia's russia's rights in their eyes to dominate the near abroad and and everyone else has to has to uh, fall into line or there's nuclear war i mean these comments are just squeezing out that middle ground as if there's there's no possible other options in there there's no room for negotiation diplomacy humanity 
um, international rule of law, anything like this. It, it's it's one or the other. So of course, as soon as there's a setback on the on the battlefield, out come the sort of veiled references to nuclear war and this and the other and all extreme measures and blah blah blah. And it's just it's designed to terrorise us. And I do I use the word advisedly, but it is designed for you know per, for a political end to make us think, oh blimey, we can't do that because that will uh, that will only lead to nuclear war. There can be no possible other end point than nuclear war therefore we've got to we've got to back down we've got to um, allow Russia to do whatever it likes and I'm not saying it's easy I'm not saying trying to find a middle ground is easy we've spoken at many many points about when uh, Putin and slash the Russian state back is against the wall what what will it do Um, regarding uh, Mariupol for a moment for the for the Avastol plant there. I, I asked um, uh, in one of the background briefings with with Western officials. I asked that that, that is the sort of the, the closest we've come to a to a uh, an actual sort of practical example of this time where Russia's uh, war aims have been stymied and there's a there's a, a very obvious humiliation on offer. And I asked how close had Russia come to using chemical weapons? Had had our had our had the Western officials seen? seen any preparation for that any units moving forward any reduction in the notice to move etc etc and they said no they hadn't so that i thought that was quite interesting that that a, 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 an area that was so totemic the, the, the to, to be able to take the whole of mariupol um and we've talked about may the 9th and the desire for putin to get to get a, a big victory by then and we know they've used chemical weapons before and yet even then not only did they didn't did they not use chemical weapons there have been some suggestions but there's no i don't think we've seen any any realistic credible evidence of that um but no western officials are saying they hadn't even they hadn't even come close to it hadn't started preparing operationally for it as in bringing units forward uh bringing munitions forward and so on and so forth so i I think there is room um to discuss well what happens if russia loses this war how what does that look like what does a a post-war relationship with russia um, even with Putin still in power, let's let's say, what does that look like? We've got to be able to have the intellectual um, freedom to to think about this and discuss this. And the more that we we and I'm not saying we are giving in to to um, this narrative, but the more we just we just allow this narrative to go unchallenged that it's either um, Russia's way or nuclear war. I think it just narrows down our options and and seeds the ground to to Russia. So, Dom, do you think? Lavrov using this language is actually demonstrative of Russian strategic weakness at this point rather than strength. I just think it's I think it's what they do. I think it's the language they're used to. Um, they know talk of nuclear weapons presses the West's buttons because we we don't like talking about them, not only from from security terms. I mean, you speak to the governments, they don't they don't talk about don't talk about nukes. Um, but it's it's so horrific that we don't really want to have that discussion in society and they and they know this and yet we're now we've almost been blooded uh, conversationally if you like over the last few weeks that that we have been forced to to discuss this and to talk about it so i don't i don't think there's any any great strategic art here in 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 dropping or you know sprinkling references to nuclear war and and escalation up to this level and and effects you've never seen before and so on and so forth i just think it's um i just think it's what they what they do and a bit like their operational display on the ground they they just they haven't got a lot of uh, they're not nimble of mind they 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 don't have don't have a lot of ability to test and adjust and move on to different areas different arguments use language better use ideas better 
um, to get over what they want when when it's not working. The, the things they're they're trying are not working. So so I think we're just seeing that the same old playbooks, um, and I think we are becoming more used to it. And and that might be that might be one of the contributing factors that the West now and we'll talk about the meeting today going on now actually in in the Ramstein U.S. airbase in Ramstein in Germany. That the the West is is better able to negotiate this. Um, I don't want to say space again because I hate that word. But you know, all these tricky, all these tricky thoughts and ideas and policies that have to come out of this, up to and including nuclear weapons and a potential for nuclear war. Um, so no, I, I don't think there's there's great thought behind it. I just think it's same old, same old. Thanks, Tom. Before we talk about. Uh, Germany and 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 this meeting as well that you've just referenced. Can we talk about a few other uh, updates which are, I think are important to mention? Um, one is um, how in Transnistria, in the breakaway Moldovan region, uh, in the east of Moldova, has raised its terrorist threat level to red um, after several blasts in in the region. Uh, what what's happening in Moldova? So the thin strip of, of Trans- Transnistria is the the area of Moldova, which is a, a um, an independent country to the southwest of Ukraine. Um, but Transnistria is a thin strip of uh, well, it's not it's not Russian territory at all. It is Moldovan territory. It's occupied by Russia. That's a hangover from the uh, from the Cold War days. Um, but in Transnistria, there are there's a large large uh, Russian speaking population um to be honest i don't know the the politics there so i don't know how whether that russian speaking population translates into um wishing for russia to to um to look after them but as uh, we've discussed in the last couple of days there's been there's been talk of from from russia from the kremlin saying that um these people are now under threat and uh, and uh, they might have to russia might have to take take action which we saw as a precursor to maybe false flag operations or just an an excuse to either either move try to move in there but of course you've got to get past um mariupol and odessa oh sorry not mariupol but but um uh uh, Mikolaev and Odessa and head west, which I don't think Russia could do at the moment. But also, there, I mean, there is a small contingent of Russian troops in Transnistria, so th- there was a suggestion that maybe this was this was a precursor to them uh, taking some kind of military action. Um, so in the last couple of days, we have seen there have been some um, some bombings there um, at state facilities, so not not um, not sort of military facilities per se. Who by we we don't know suggestions all over the place that it's that it's either a false flag or that it is Ukraine. I I simply do not know, um, and it, I I don't think it'd be helpful to massively speculate at this juncture. But Ukraine has shown very little interest in that area, less keeping an eye on on what Russia might do there. So um, I, I might lean away from these being uh, Ukrainian attacks. Um, but what's happened overnight is that there are two two large radio transmitters, AM transmitters in that area uh and they were they've been they've been bombed uh a very interesting comment from Krista Grozev who the, the, from Bellingcat who said that these uh these transmitters they were they had been being used by the uh, evangelical broadcaster Transworld Radio Russia took them over earlier in the war um and was was sort of blasting um their message propaganda into into Ukraine um, but yes had been used by the evangelical broadcaster and Christopher Grozev just said so we can work out that this attack either came from Ukraine or from God one of the two so you know you pay your money you take your choice but no there's there's been there are continuing um, actions in in the Transnistria region of Moldova um, by by whom and to what end we've yet to see but there will be more more to come from there I still think it's I, I think this is Russia 
diverting attention and um, trying to foment um, foment uprest. That's my that's my personal view. Um, but uh, yes, I think there's there's more to more to come over the next few days. Francis, do you want to come in on any of that? Um, my only other comment, Dom's covered it very comprehensively there, would be that this is an example, I think, of how this conflict, particularly in the context of information wars is and, and, and propaganda from the Kremlin, is, is bleeding into to other parts of, of, of Eastern and Central Europe. I was reading some very interesting pieces of analysis over the weekend about... Um, so the, the the Czech Republic and Slovakia, Czech Republic, Czech Republic particularly has been very supportive of Ukraine, particularly with regard to its military support um, provided by in 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 sort of terms of tanks and and, and other heavy munitions. Um, and of course, being a former Soviet state, one perhaps should expect that. Um, but also there's numerous examples, if you look in uh, sort of beneath the surface of where there are quite large percentages of the population there that are actually buying into some of the Putin propaganda um, around Ukraine and denazification and you know, so this being a special operation and that there's been an overreach. And I just think it's you know, we, 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 for obvious reasons, tend to summarise a country's opinion on a matter um, as being only one thing. Um, you know, Britain firmly in support of Ukraine, um, Czech Republic firmly in support of Ukraine. But actually, it is more complicated than that. There are divergences of opinion within countries, and we'll come on to Germany in a minute. And I just think it's worth paying attention to that, that, that politicians are under considerable pressure from from fairly sizable percentage of their population at times to do less in supporting Ukraine or in doing more. Um, but particularly with regard to this less one, I think it's worth paying attention to Central Europe and how not everybody is on board with this. And clearly there are concerted efforts um, on the part of, of, of the Kremlin to be feeding misinformation into, into, these, into these areas. And indeed, one piece of analysis that I was reading was arguing that sort of the new battleground, as it were, in this information war is actually going to be Central Europe. So I would say expect to see some, some uh, perhaps some interesting developments in that space in, in, in the coming weeks, because clearly Putin thinks that it's important to and that there is room for manoeuvre in, in winning rounds. Some fairly large percentage of populations of, of some of those former Soviet states. Thank you very much, Francis. Well, let's move on and talk about Germany and the 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 German decision to authorise the delivery of anti-aircraft guns uh, to to Ukraine. Uh, where did this come from and what, what might the impact be? So um, we've spoken a lot about Germany's stance in the past week or so and the pressure that Olaf Scholz has come under from not only within his own country, but also particularly from uh, Germany's allies within NATO and, and the West more broadly. He was effectively trying to um, find a middle path, I think, um, between uh, not risking in his conception of the conflict a further escalation by providing tanks. Um, and he so he claimed as well that he didn't want to be in a position where Germany, if the war did escalate, was was under defended. Um, that has been, as I say, heavily criticised um, uh, as a in, in, and we'll come on to that in a second. But uh, he has now finally um, about turned. Um, after these 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 criticisms, and will now be sending these tanks to Ukraine. Um, it comes after considerable domestic pressure, pressure forgive me, from um, the opposition in Germany, who were going to force a parliamentary vote on the supply of heavy heavy arms to Ukraine. 
that obviously is not what you want when you're a newly elected leader is a very, very contentious vote that shows your weakness within your own parliament. Um, there was also criticism as well from junior coalition partners. Of course, in Germany, this is a coalition government um, who are expected to rebel. So this, I think, is what has fundamentally changed um, uh, Olaf, Scholz, uh, Olaf Scholz's mind. Um, Scholz's mind. But um, I was very struck, actually, reading about this and thinking about this, that um, it reminds me very much uh, of, of, of Theresa May during the, the Brexit era. She also... Uh, in a sense, was was it, it partly through her own obviously fault of calling an election in 2017, but she inherited two very strongly diff- opposed opposing views on Brexit, and um, whether it be you know having a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit, if we can articulate it in those terms, um, she too, like Olaf Scholz on this issue, tried to find a middle path, a middle way, um, but ultimately that was unsustainable and naive because what happens is is with time, positions harden and ultimately there is no middle path. And as we were saying last week, I think this has become from what was initially this conflict being a very, a a sort of a grey war in the sense that um, we weren't sure whether... Um, Zelensky might actually be willing to concede certain territorial demands from the Russians, um, whether, you know, to to save his country, he would be willing to give in on certain principles around NATO membership, etc, etc. That now is increasingly unlikely as this has become a black and white conflict between um, any, the perception of giving Putin anything from this military invasion or, or, um, uh, or, you know, him winning outright. And so uh, as a consequence of that, I just thought it was a very interesting parallel that essentially, as with Theresa May's coalition government, there is no middle path. There never was. And actually, this, these last few weeks have been that eventual slow but gradual realisation of that fact um, amongst the Western leadership, the Western powers, particularly France and Germany. But of course, that is all boards down. The fundamental reason for that is the stoic and heroic defence of Ukraine provided by the Ukrainian people, which which nobody, nobody expected. Um, just one other um, thought uh, on this. Um, I was very struck by some remarks made by a former mayor of Dusseldorf, um, who was a social democrat. Um, of course, social de- democrats being um, uh, one of the other major parties in 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 Germany, more left leaning, but he was making some very interesting <laughs> observations. I think in the context of this, which just shows to some of the misunderstanding um, of 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 the German political elite regarding this conflict. So he says, and I quote: um, "This is translated. Um, in this respect, continued arms deliveries from the West to Ukraine will, in all probability, only lead to the war lasting longer and longer. The number of victims and the extent of the destruction increasing, and a lasting peace." solution becoming increasingly unlikely. So if that is representative of the mentality amongst the German elite, as I think from what we've been hearing it, it was, um, then, well, um, I, I think that that shows a real um, ignorance, frankly, of, of the, the reality on the ground. As we've been talking about, the attrition rates that Germany, sorry, that Russia is suffering in terms of its, um, its, its military losses are so profound that it is impossible, to Dom's point, that this will be able to, be, to go on indefinitely in the way that this, uh, this um, former mayor of uh, Dusseldorf was, um, w- was saying, um, that, it, that, that this will not, that, that a, a uh, further military arms to, to Ukraine from the West is more likely to shorten this war than it is to elongate it. So I just thought it was an interesting observation that in, in terms of, 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 of it showing, I think, a misunderstanding within the German elite from a military historian, military strategist perspective. Um, but that said, as I say, as that said, Germany actually is providing quite considerable 
support um, but more so than, than than perhaps has been registered in the West. They are providing considerable weaponry now as opposed to the 5,000 helmets they initially offered. Um, but because of this middle path that Olaf Scholz is trying to uh, to negotiate, ultimately um, he is not communicating it very effectively at all. And Germany, as I say, still seems in a very, very weak position on this, which is very unfortunate. Um, and, and one I think that they will have no choice but to rectify now that they've made this U-turn. Thanks, Francis. Dom, do you want to come in and just talk to us a little bit about the the, the kit that the, the Germans are sending and just correct any misapprehensions, people, misunderstandings people have had about it? Yeah, so uh, contrary to, uh, to, to some some reports from uh, very reputable media organisations, um, we've got to be careful here. There's an old gag about what journalists call tanks and what actually are tanks. And there's a list of there's a tank and a journalist will call that a tank. Then there's a BMP, a journalist will call that a tank. There's a BMD, an artillery piece, an engineer, recce, a BTR, and other, other infantry fighting vehicles. Journalists call them all tanks. Then there's a Volvo saloon and a journalist will call it a tank. So, you know, ho, 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 all, all very, all very uh, amusing. And I do get bent around the axle, no pun intended, of trying to explain the difference between tanks and IFEs, infantry fighting vehicles, and so on and so forth, sometimes here in the Telegraph newsroom. But, I, I mean, it is important because the, the Gepard uh, anti-aircraft guns that have been that have been supplied here or are going to be supplied by Germany, um, th- that's what they are. They are, anti- they are tracked vehicles, anti-aircraft guns, with two big, you know, whacking great 35-millimeter auto cannons on either side. They've also got... Um, to 7.62 self-protection um, weapons as well, mainly mainly used in the anti uh, anti-air role. Can can also be used um, in the well in the direct fire role in the in the on the ground because you know if you've got 35 millimeter rounds coming down down range at you, then you know that's going to make you think twice. Uh, 48 tons, so it's big. Whacking great radar um, to to spot air def- uh, um, air threats. Uh, fairly old, brought brought in uh, twenty thirty years ago. Uh, have been updated, obviously, but um, still fairly old. Fairly old piece of kit. Been been superseded in the German armory, but still no, no, no you know, no, no, um, whatever the word, spring chicken. I don't know what's, what's worth for a bit of a rubbish kit. They they are not rubbish pieces of kit. Um, they're quite. Uh, I mean, they're sophisticated to, to have a radar, um, which then can talk to guns and you've obviously got to have a drive it somewhere so there's a there's a lot of a lot of cr- um, crew training to be done on these things so it, it takes us back into the debate of oh no we can't we can't be sending um leopards and and challenger 2 and, and all the rest of it to uh, uh to ukraine because the training burden is too high well the training burden is going to be quite quite large on these things that that might be a conversation for another day but in and of themselves they are they are significant pieces of of equipment significant capability up upgrade they are not tanks is the point the point i'm you know getting a very long-winded way of saying they are not tanks they are not designed to go into that direct fire that contact battle to 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 move into and take enemy positions they will be very close to that action in order to um provide this air defense umbrella but we need to be careful about when we're saying um supplying tanks because it firstly it's factually incorrect but secondly that's become such a loaded term um just recently in, in the in the guise of of weapon shipments to ukraine we just need to be very careful about about our language here so um no uh, so they're not tanks but they are, they are very very um potent pieces of equipment anti-aircraft uh pieces of equipment that uh, yeah that germany's now going to send to ukraine question mark over the marder infantry fighting vehicle and also leopard 2s and the the aging leopard 2 tanks um that that germany has there there are questions being asked both in uh, as i understand it in the uh, in the political 
realm as well as industry in Germany about MARDA and Leopard 2. But uh, but no, the, the news day is that the self-propelled anti-air gun, um, the, the Gepard, known as Cheetah, uh, are going to be sent to Ukraine. Thanks, Dom. That's a fantastic context and I think will help us understand a lot, a lot more what, what's actually being sent. Um, Dom Nichols, can we stay with you? You've written a well, it's, well, you've been working on it, and this is, it's rather awful to read, a story about uh, flechettes. And this is the, these are sort of large metal darts that have been found in the bodies exhumed from the mass graves um, in Butcher. Uh, and what can you tell us a little bit about what flesh, flechettes are, where do they come from, and what does this mean for, for the war? And, and we've talked about war crimes many times now on, the, on this podcast. So if you talk to <clears throat> what this means to understanding... Um, Russian war crimes in Ukraine. I think I think that'd be very interesting. Yeah, so I wrote this yesterday, um, largely taken from a report in the Guardian, which I think was largely based on a report in the Washington Post. Um, but this came from forensic uh, investigators in Ukraine, particularly in the Bucha area, so just to the northwest of, of Kiev, the capital, looking at or exhuming some of the uh, civilian bodies um, killed in the during the, the the weeks of the Russian occupation. Uh, Russia moved into the area very, very soon after the invasion on February the 24th and was um, and was in the area for weeks and was one of the first areas that that was able to be um, investigated properly after the after the Russia withdrew north over the border. Um, scene of many, many civilian deaths, uh, fairly strong evidence, I think, of war crimes there. Um, so civilians are protected under the Geneva Conventions, um, and, and less than until a civilian takes up arms, they are they are given protected status. And there's all sorts of nuance to um, when a civilian picks up an arm. Are they are they a fighter? Are they are they are they wearing a uniform and so on and so forth? But we don't need to get into that. If there are civilians and they have nothing to do with fighting, and there's no military target where they are near, then they should not be targeted. And Evidence from the last few days is that some of the bodies, and many of the bodies, dozens we're told, that have been exhumed from the mass graves in Butcher uh, were killed by flechette rounds. Now, flechettes are, are small arrows, basically, um, about two or three inches long, and they can be fired from a, a number of different um, types of uh, ammunition, so either ground-based or artillery or um, aviation from attack helicopter and they are they are basically designed to act like a like a shotgun effectively just to blast a huge amount of very very sharp metal in the air to um to work in an anti-personnel role now there's no no legitimate way these should have been fired um at civilians there's no reason why these should have been fired in civilian areas if there was no military target there and i think I'll be amazed if any evidence comes out that there were there were legitimate military targets in that area of Butcher. Um, so these, the suggestion is that these were indiscriminately fired, probably by artillery, into Butcher by Russia, um, using these flechette rounds. Now, that in itself, that's a war crime. If we if we if we get around all the legal niceties and we say, okay, we, yes, we are we are content that that is that is a war crime. That in itself is not is not necessarily news. Uh, we have seen that before f- from Butcher when we first uh, were able to go in there after Russia Russia left. Um, it's worth ke- keeping the attention on these things, though, um, just to. And I'm glad to see that the, the the pathologists and the forensic experts are. 
looking to build future cases, um, hopefully to bring people to account for these actions. Um, the flechette rounds, I, I didn't particularly in the piece yesterday. I didn't really want to get into the into the morality of it because, I mean, weapons are weapons are horrible. Weapons are designed to kill. Um, flechette rounds, high explosive, uh, small arms. These are all designed to kill human beings. Um, and to try and draw the distinction almost between one or the other type of weapon, I think I thought was was unhelpful. How you use them and whether or not your actions are legal, that is absolutely fair game. But to talk about the weapons themselves, it was almost there was a there was an element of I wouldn't say glorification, but but just some of the some of the details are, are just are, are pretty nasty. And you don't you don't really want to you don't really need to know all this kind of stuff. It, it kills a human being. It kills a human being. I'm. I don't think I'm dancing on the head of a pin here. Um, and I should say that, that the British Army and other Western armies use flechette rounds. We use them in Afghanistan, fired from Apache attack helicopters. They are, um, if you deem weapons to be legitimate, they are a legitimate use uh, in an anti-personnel role. If there's no or low damage of uh, you know, risk of collateral damage. Um, in Afghanistan, after every action... It was subject to an investigation to make sure that that it was used correctly and it was em- employed um, as it should have been against the targets it should have been. So this is what I mean about we've got to be careful when we talk about weapons. You can you can almost de dehumanize the weapon um, and and not think about what it's actually trying to do. And okay, I'd love for none of this to be happening. I'd love for for, for nobody to be getting killed, but. You shouldn't just move from there to say, "Well, all these all these weapons should be banned." It's it's how they're used and, and where they're used, and the decisions that are taken for their employment. That is the that is the important part. So, by all means, go and have a look on our on our website. Have a look in the paper, and it's covered elsewhere as well about what these what these things are. They were they were developed about a hundred years ago in Italy. They were used in the, in the First World War. Have been used have been used since, um, refined in their use. Uh, Israel used to use them. I think they stopped using them in the uh, from tank shell fired by tanks um, some years ago when they when they killed a number of journalists um, covering the covering the, the issues in Israel and Palestine. Um, so they are they are they themselves are the weapon is is pretty gruesome. But as I say, all weapons are pretty gruesome. They're, they're designed to kill people. Um, it's how they're used and when they're used and, and who makes the decisions and how those decisions are, are arrived at. That is, that is the important thing. So we should focus, I think, on the, on the war crime here rather than the actual the, the means of that crime being carried out. Thanks, Tom. Um, Francis and Tom, anything else we should mention um, from Ukraine before I get your final thoughts? Something of note, I think it's just worth commenting on, is the United Nations Secretary General's travelled to Moscow today to meet with Vladimir Putin in an attempt to put the UN really at the heart of the Ukrainian mediation efforts. I think this is noteworthy um, for several reasons. The first is, of course, he is under pressure. Um, The UN has really been fairly ineffectual, I think it's fair to say, in this conflict thus far. Um, It has made overtures in condemning Russia, but of course, Russia remains on the UN Security Council, so they can just veto any action that that council sought to to take. so there's that side of things, uh, of trying him perhaps trying to make the UN 
I suppose, be returned to some sort of position as the as the overarching global mediator in 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 these kind of affairs, um, uh, as opposed to to uh, to NATO or Turkey, of course, who's also been acting as a broker between the Ukrainians and and, and the Russians. Um, but I think it's also significant as well because of the condemnation that's actually been. Um, been made by certain powers, um, including the uh, British Prime Minister, I believe, um, about this this uh, going to Moscow, um, because of course he has not yet been to Ukraine, um, and as a consequence of that, it will be used almost certainly by the Russians in their propaganda, as you know, it elevates the Russians to have uh, visiting um, such a. Fe- a significant foreign dignitary um, global figure really um, visiting Moscow so it will be used for that purposes and indeed it's not just the British that have condemned this it's also um, Vladimir Zelensky of course who says it's simply wrong to go first to you to Russia and then to Ukraine there is no justice and no logic in this order the war is in Ukraine there are no bodies in the streets of Moscow it would be logical to go first to Ukraine to see the people there the consequences of the occupation so once again we are seeing some evidence of uh, of tensions within the west i think it's fair to say with regard to um, uh, the best strategy here of course the un as well is is a, is is not just western it is global um, china of course are also one of the major um, powers that sit on the UN and uh, we can expect of course that they too would uh, if, if push came to shove would be involved in in, in vetoes of, of, of condemning Russia too strongly so effectively you've got a, a UN Secretary General here whose hands are tied um, by the veto um, and uh, and so I think that any attempts that he is making to, 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 to act as a mediator are, are ultimately probably more um, of, of propagandic value for for the Russian state um, rather than actually being a, a, a legitimate vehicle or a, an effective vehicle for, for peacemaking efforts. Ultimately, as I keep coming back to this point, as things stand, um, with the, the war being as it is, uh, this is currently black and white. And um, it is both sides, Russia and Zelensky, are going for, for all-out victory. And until that changes, then I do not think that any peace mediation efforts will, will, will be successful. Thanks, Francis. Anything, anything from you, Dom, that you think we've missed? Uh, just very briefly, uh, so the meeting that happening t- now in the US air base in Ramstein in Germany, I was hoping to go to that, but uh, it turns out that the Defence Secretary went, went in <laughs> too small a plane, didn't take any journalists with him, but we will get the readout later. So this is being um, convened by US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and um, the uh, Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin uh, on their way back from Ukraine, and we think there's about 40 countries that have gone along to it. This is not only um, showing political support for Ukraine, it's also another uh, keeping these sort of round of, of donor conferences as they, as they become known uh, going so to, to get more uh, kit and equipment out there. Um, it's interesting some of, the, some of the words that have come out, come out this morning. So Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken has said we don't know how the rest of this war will unfold but we do know that a sovereign independent Ukraine will be around for a lot longer than Vladimir Putin is on the scene. Quite telling. Uh, Lloyd Austin also said of the Ukrainians, they have the mindset that they want to win. We have the mindset that we want to help them win and we're going to do that. And he also said, we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kind of things that it has done in invading Ukraine. So pretty, you know, pretty strong language here from uh, from the US. Moving on from the um, 
uh, I mean, you know, right back at the start of the war, saying to President Zelensky, you know, do you, do you want to do you want to ride out of there? Do you want do you want safe passage out? No, no, I don't need to ride any ammunition. He, he said back. So strong language now that we've moved from that to um, not only keeping Ukraine in the fight, but the US there very very strongly talking about Ukraine. I mean, if you want to talk about it in these terms, you know, winning winning the war, surviving afterwards, seeing, seeing out Vladimir Putin. Um, and also in, in, imposing a cost on Russia for doing these sorts of things. So, so very, very strong language that, we, that we've not heard of before. And finally, finally, yesterday we talked about this new... Um, I was confused about the new money, the $713 million in the uh, foreign... Oh, forgive me, I can't remember the, the term, but um, President Biden announced some more money that wasn't just uh, military equipment, it was also training and, and other bits and pieces for Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Uh, but in that, there was 165 million in non-NATO spec uh, equipment. So some some more detail on that. That includes uh, 152 millimeter artillery ammunition. NATO standards 155. Arti- uh, Ukraine uses a slightly different nature, uh, so it's not not in NATO, you know, not not much of it around NATO. But there's money here to buy that. There's also uh, ammunition for AGS 17 automatic grenade launchers, um, 82 mil and 120 mil mortar rounds. BM-21 Grad rockets, uh, 300mm MLRS Smirsh rockets, and 125mm uh, ammunition for T-72. So a huge amount of money, $165 million being put to just buy on, on the market um, non-NATO standard ammunition to supply to Ukraine. So combined, a fairly fairly strong brief, uh, a fairly, fairly strong message um, coming out of that, that visit from from uh, Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin to Ukraine. Be very interesting to see what else comes out from Ramstein today. But the um, the West seems very very much that it's gearing up for for the long term and a and a post a post war future, possibly even a post Putin future. So yeah, m- much to much to wait to see from today. Thanks, Tom. Um, well, Francis and Tom, can I have your final thoughts, please? What should we be looking for over the next few days? Well, I just make two comments. I think the first is, of course, that it, whilst there's been many notable events that we've just been describing over, over the last 24 hours, this is, uh, I think, another example of where there hasn't been anything that has uh, major in terms of, of, of huge, profound military consequence um, for several days now. And that is the nature of war. And I would just point out and, and remind people that, 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 that sometimes it, it, things don't happen overnight. We're living in, a, in an age now where we expect everything to be instantaneous, to be quick, to be rapid, to be reported immediately, and, and then to be, for us all to move on, the news cycle to move on. But that isn't the case with, with, with conflicts. It always is, is prolonged and protracted. And I think we should just, um, uh, you know, we, sometimes we don't know the true significance of, of certain strategic manoeuvres until you know weeks or months later and so um i think it's just urging patience and to not lose attention to what is going on in ukraine it all still very much matters but these things take time um the second remark i would just make is um is is regarding um a story that we have in the paper that i would just point people to read um just to, I think it just underlines the point that Dom was making earlier on about just the the, the lunacy of, frankly, of the um, sort of Russian propaganda machine and and, and the, generally the sort of rhetoric and things that that that, uh, that they are willing to use, whilst which which most other countries have just find frankly absolutely absurd. So this is about a raid on uh, an, an alleged Western plot to kill a pro-Putin journalist in Russia. And um, they released this video, um, this, you can imagine, is being broadcast across, across Russian-backed TV. 
of 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 this supposedly these this um this western plot being exposed and uh in the uh the operation they arrest six russian members of a of a fascist group supposedly recruited by ukraine's intelligence agency to kill several tv personalities but what makes it so evidently absurd is that um some fsb officer has been given the task of making this you know to basically create what a supposedly a uh, a western backed um fascist organization would have in their in their flat in their house so we have predictably a photograph of adolf hitler on the desk we have an automatic rifle hiding in the corner of a room but um on a an order um supposedly from the ukrainian intelligence services it's signed off with the words literally in russian signature signature unclear so supposedly it was an apparent instruction um to make an unclear to write an unclear signature so that it couldn't be you know found to be from anybody specific but some poor agent has actually carried this out literally it has written signature unclear and as another example i think in probably the most farcical of them all is clearly they were ordered to to find three uh, sims as in sim cards for mobile phones to have on the side of course if you're using in in intelligence operations very often you'll have uh, multiple phones to be utilizing but um they've actually got three copies of the video game the sims so in this absurd photograph you have a swastika you've got a picture of hitler you've got a gun and you've got three copies of of the sims i mean it just it, i mean what more can one say it is totally absurd um and uh, and yet here we are and that as i say it just underlines the absurdity of of the russian propaganda sheet and i think we're right to to mock it really for what it is which is frankly just utterly utterly ridiculous thanks francis uh dominicals would you like the final words thank you i'd I, i'm no fan as as listeners to this pod and this twitter space will know i'm a massive fan of the un um hopefully the un has now turned up uh, I would like to see Antonio Guterres go at some length to Ukraine after visiting Moscow and go to Bucha and to visit these sites. Um, there's echoes here of um, the war in, in Bosnia when uh, Boutros Boutros Ghali, the, the Secretary General at the time, when he was pressed on the siege of Sarajevo and the, and the terrible conditions that were being um, that were being experienced by the civilian population there and he, he made this offhand comment he said he said i could i can point to half a dozen places around the world right now that are worse than sarajevo i mean it might have been it might have been true but it was just it's just such a deaf ear so the un has not got a gr- great form here and if uh, antonio Guterres does not go and make a big show a big show of of standing up for humanity in ukraine and visiting these sites and 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 being seen to go there preferably with um, President Zelensky, then I think I will, I will finally turn my back on the UN and just and just look for look for the League of Nations or look for look for something else. Yesterday, because, I spoke to Daniel Sherry, the, the Telegraph's UN, defence and political correspondent, who's been reporting from Ukraine for the past few weeks. I caught up with her just as her time in the country came to an end. From Warsaw Airport, she told me about her experiences of this war. Danny, it's been a while since we've spoken. Where have you been in Ukraine recently? So the last week, we have been sticking in the Kyiv region, just continuing to mop up the aftermath, going and speaking to victims of sexual assault, which has been pretty awful to sit and listen to. Um, And it's really hard now because I honestly feel like all my days merge into one. Like I'm trying to think back clearly on what I've done 
this last week and I'm actually struggling to kind of separate it in my mind. Um, but the, I mean, I think um, it was in Sunday's paper, we did a, a, a cool farming dispatch. So that was going out to the big farms um, in the Kiev region and speaking to farmers about how they've been impacted because of the invasion. Um, and it, it just made for quite a different piece, you know, getting out onto the land and speaking to farmers and seeing cattle and and talking about how the wheat industry has been really affected. Uh, Ukraine is known as Europe's breadbasket. It supplies a huge amount of wheat to Europe, but also to North African countries. And there's a real risk of famine out that way because of uh, they're now not getting their grains. Um, and just the, the, the huge amount of money that's been lost as this impact's been affected. It's been a really full-on week. It's been very interesting. I should have a piece regarding kind of my final uh, story I've done out here, which was um, about sexual assault. So, yes, um, it's been intense and I'm rotating out today. As you, can, as you know, I'm in Warsaw Airport right now. It, it was a very long drive to, to get here, um, but we made it. And so there'll be other colleagues now out in Ukraine covering the war uh, for the next month, five weeks or so. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they uncover. So what for you, what, what would be your big takeaways from the past few weeks then? What memories will really stay with you? Well, I think there's a real misconception about war, what war reporting is, and it's perhaps something I thought about and that's that war reporting is all about missile strikes and the sheer violence and seeing buildings blown up and and kind of gun battles and tank battles and soldiers fighting um but what I've experienced is that there's a a real human side to war and it's this is actually something Paul said and um, I agree with that war reporting is actually very sad what you're dealing with is misery and the emotion and the displaced citizens and the real human struggles and sacrifices that they've been forced to endure so I think my takeaway is that war reporting is actually incredibly emotional and emotionally draining because of you are dealing with that human human suffering and for our listeners who almost certainly live far 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 away from ukraine what would you want them to understand about the country and about the state of the war at the moment just that they're really suffering and russia isn't going to stop and people that claim that this isn't genocide, I'm looking at Emmanuel Macron, they're completely wrong. This is genocide. And I do think all Western nations need to be doing more. We need to be giving arming Ukraine as heavily as possible, doing more in terms of humanitarian aid because people are starving they're without electricity so they're cold i don't even know like how people are going to mentally digest the trauma that they've put through i just think we need to be doing 
we as in collectively western nations need to be doing as much as humanly possible to help ukraine fight off russia because yes they they are like a dog with a bone they're not going to stop and the ukrainians you met when you were out there what, what did you make of them I just think they're the most wonderful, resilient people I've ever met. You know, even um, so on Saturday morning before we left um, to begin our drive home, you know, I'm sat in this kitchen interviewing a woman that was raped. She was still like able to make a joke outside after the interview had finished and um, you know, it's her. It was her birthday the next day, and she was tr- cooking a meal because she wanted to have a way of marking this special day, even though she obviously is so disturbed by what's happened to her. She still has that kind of inner strength to 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 proceed with elements of normality, and um, just I said it time and again: the the strength of the Ukrainian people, the resilience and the pride in their nation, how they aren't willing to allow Russia to come in and kind of rewrite history and take over their country, that they are determined to beat Russia in this ridiculous war is um, just, they just define courage and um, I will be forever in awe of them. Was it difficult to, to leave the country? Did you want to stay, or do you do you feel like do you feel quite you've done you've done your bit and you can rotate out now? I'm tired. I'm really emotionally t- tired, and we're on the road every single day, and we get up early and we file late, and um, it's really draining. Kind of dealing with this stuff every day, and not having a day off because, well. I don't want to waste my time. I want to be doing as much as possible. So it would be pointless having like the weekend off when there's stories to be covered. So, um, yeah, it's been like unrelenting, but I wouldn't have had it any other way. But you also have to look after yourself. And I know I'm really tired because in the evenings I'm just wiped out. And also I really miss my friends and my family and I want to come home and see them. And I suppose that's the kind of the weird thing about war reporting is that you're so fully immersed in it and then that you have the choice to leave it and I will be going to see my friends in London in a couple of days and having fun and it's a strange parallel our job and I suppose I've had that on in numerous stories I've covered over the years you know you can sit through the most hair and court case all day and then go home and completely switch off and think of something else. And I guess it's kind of similar in a sense. You know, that person that's in that court case still has to live through the the horrible crime that's been committed against them day in, day out. But you kind of check in and report on it and leave. And I suppose it's the same with this war that I've gone in and I've been embedded in it and now I'm going to leave and go back to my life and that's a strange thing to digest at the same time I do think you need to look after yourself and I it is really tiring as I said I do feel like I've only scratched the surface 
though. There are so many, many more stories that need to be told. Um, but I suppose the beauty of the Telegraph is uh, there are loads of really good journalists here that can get out there and, and continue doing that. And oh, it's not just us, obviously. There are so many brilliant journalists out there covering the war. So between us, hopefully, we'll continue to to do a good job of relaying what the hell's going on there to others. But it is, um, yeah, you feel, I feel like strange leaving because I, I wanted, I, I want to keep on reporting, but then I also know I need to come back because I'm tired. So yes, it's, that's why I, I've said, I feel like I'm left with a heavy heart because I, I know there's so much more to do out there, but I need to, I need to come back. Do you think you'll go back? I would love to. I hope so. Um, and it's up to the company. Um, I definitely want to, though. It, I think it's a story that I'm invested in and I'm interested in and I want to keep telling. Um, so, yes, definitely. Daniel Sheridan, would you give us your final thoughts then after reporting for nearly a month now in Ukraine? My final thoughts are a feel really lucky to have gone out there and been able to do my bit in reporting on the atrocities that are being committed at the hands of Putin. I'm shocked that this has happened in the 21st century and I wish it hadn't. And I hope to God he is stopped Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Today, Ukraine The Latest was produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Alice Hearing.